ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Wednesday the 15th of November. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. More Australians are reporting being targeted by cyber criminals as the nation's digital spy agency points the finger at China as the major backer of serious hacking against Australian companies and critical infrastructure. The Australian Signals Directorate has released its annual cyber threat update, revealing 94,000 reports of cyber crime in the past year, and that may just be the tip of the iceberg. Political reporter Matthew Doran is at Parliament House in Canberra. Well, David, this report is showing that cybercrime is hitting not only the nation's corporate sector and infrastructure, but it's hitting the broader community as well. 94,000 reports made to law enforcement agents last year at an increase of 23% on the previous financial year. And we do need to point out in this instance that reporting is not actually mandatory, and that's leading agencies to fear that the situation is actually far worse. The average cost of cybercrime to businesses is also on the up. For small businesses back in 2020, 2021, the financial burden was sitting at around $30,000 on average. That's increased to almost $46,000 in the last financial year. And it's interesting to note that the bulk of these cybercrime reports are coming from Queensland and Victoria. That's not necessarily because those two states are a harder or higher target for cybercriminals. Authorities just believing that they're actually just more diligent in notifying authorities of those cybercrime incidents. On the more serious side, the more crippling side of cybercrime, the number of major incidents where ASD, the Australian Signals Directorate, has had to step in and intervene to stop hacks happening or shore up cyber defences has remained fairly steady at 1,100 incidents a year, but there has been an increase in attacks crippling federal government agencies or critical infrastructure and leading to what uh, agencies are calling an extensive compromise of sensitive data. That rose from two to five. State-backed cybercrime remains a serious concern with ASD labelling China as the main main actor there. And there's daylight before the next country on the list, Russia, and to a lesser extent, Iran. And Matthew, does the intelligence agency have any concerns about how companies are cooperating with them during cyber attacks? There is a concern that some companies are effectively lawyering up, that they're not being that forthcoming with information to uh, agencies like ASD when they are hit with an attack, because they're worried that information could then be used against them in future class actions, in in the courts, or in future regulatory actions uh, by other agencies. So they're actually seeking from the federal government, and we know the federal government is considering it, new legislative protections that would quarantine or ring-fence that information, similar to regimes that are in existence in the United States, to ensure that companies feel a little bit more safe or a little bit more comfortable coming to them when they are hit. Matthew Doran in Canberra there. Well, the Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister Richard Miles joined me a short time ago. Richard Miles, thanks for your time. China's been singled out as the major backer of serious hacking of Australian companies and critical infrastructure. What is the government doing about that? Well, uh, what the... um report makes clear is that in terms of cybercrime, we are seeing um, an increase in the number of reports of cybercrime over the course of the last year, 23% increase. And and, and concerningly, um, each of those reports 
uh, carry a much greater cost for businesses, something like a 14% increase. So we're seeing more reports and, and, and the incidents are themselves more costly for businesses. From a government point of view, we are seeing state actors uh, showing more interest in our critical infrastructure. And so you know, we are investing $10 billion uh, over 10 years to the Australian Signals Directorate, which effectively sees a doubling in its size uh, to bolster our cyber capacity, to bolster our cyber defences in that sense. Uh, are we striking thing, back as well? Uh, we, we, we have a, a, a full range of capabilities um, in the Australian Signals Directorate um, and we're making sure that we are as capable as we can be. Okay. How much more of a rich target are we now that we've signed the AUKUS nuclear submarine deal? Uh, I don't think it particularly makes us a bigger target, but it is right to say that um, as we become more militarily capable, um, there are, that is obviously going to draw attention in terms of um, the, the areas that um, uh, other actors are going to be interested in. And, and so to, to, to flip that, as we move forward with AUKUS and developing a nuclear-powered submarine capability, we are acutely aware of the need to make sure that our cyber defences there uh, in the best possible place they can be. And, and that's why we're investing more in ASD. It's, it's a key reason. Uh, I mean, in this day and age, you can't develop critical military capability without also making sure that you not only have physical protection around it, but you have cyber protection around it. And, and, and that is a key part of how we, we think about and prepare our defence force today. We're hearing that companies that have been attacked online aren't always providing government agencies with all the information that they have about the attack. Will the government legislate to ring fence any information that's provided from ending up in other areas of government where it could be used against the companies? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, David, and and, and this is um, a, an issue that we are making sure that we, we get right and will form part of the cyber strategy that we announce uh, later in the month. I, I, mean, I mean, the issue here is that if you're a company and you've, you've, you're in the midst of a cyber attack, you need the best advice you can get. The Australian Signals Directorate is really our, our expert here, and, and their ability to come in in the moment to be able to look at the systems, to be able to understand what's going on um, is really critical. And I can understand why companies in that instance want to make sure that whatever ASD comes across is not ultimately then you know the subject of what any other agency and government might do. So that that safe harbour concept is absolutely a concept that we want to see pursued. Uh, we need to be building the greatest possible confidence that we can for companies to interact with um, ASD in in the moment, like when the, when the attack is actually happening, because that's the way in which we mitigate it the most make sure that uh, the data, well, the least amount of data ends up leaving the system, as it were. Um, and um, and so, so safe harbour uh, mechanism, safe harbour legislation is absolutely an area that we are going to examine very carefully. Just a few other issues, if I can. The federal government's argued in court against the release of almost 100 people from immigration detention, citing, amongst other things, national security concerns. Now 81 of them have been released into the community. Are any of those that have been released a threat to national security? 
the, the concern that we have here is obviously for community safety. Uh, and that's really our focus. Um, and, and we are concerned about this, to be frank. This is not what we wanted. We obviously argued against this, as you said, in, in, in the High Court. Um, in these people being released, they have been placed on bridging visas with the strictest possible conditions uh, to make sure that we are ensuring community safety. And we'll continue to look at what more we can do here, um, examining potentially legislative options, um, bearing in mind that the actual full reasons, the full judgments of the court haven't been released yet, um, and uh, and that that's making the situation more difficult in terms of how the government responds. But, but that's said, we are looking at every possible option here um, with community safety front and centre in terms of how we respond to this. And just on the Middle East, would you like to see steps toward a ceasefire in Gaza? Well, again, there's been um, a lot of re reporting on this. Um, the, w w the around the world, um, our um, efforts in terms of deploying Australian statecraft and power to the extent that we have it in this circumstance has been around trying to minimise the, the loss of life. That's what everyone around the world is doing. I think the whole world would love to see this stop. But in and the humanitarian pauses that have been put in place are certainly very welcome. But in moving to a ceasefire, it cannot be one-sided. Um, you know, October the seventh happened. Hamas is still uh, launching uh, attacks against Israel, and they've not resiled from the attacks which occurred on the seventh of October. Um, and obviously, the, um, Israel have um, hostages who are still being held by Hamas. Israel does have a right right, um, to act against Hamas. Um, and, and that's something that we have acknowledged from the, the, the very start. Um, in doing so, we, we have called for Israel and every participant to be engaging on the basis of the rules of war. Um, and we need to be thinking um, about, in all that's happening, minimising the loss of um, innocent uh, Palestinian lives, obviously the innocent Israeli lives that were lost back on October 7th. And, and, and that is very much our focus in terms of the way in which we are engaging in our diplomacy. And Richard Miles is the Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Defence. A mass grave's been dug on the grounds of Gaza's biggest hospital to bury patients who've died. And according to a spokesman for Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry, there are about 100 bodies. Israel says the Al-Shifa hospital sits on top of a subterranean Hamas headquarters. Hamas denies there are fighters there. Meanwhile, paramedics in Gaza are working around the clock to try to save lives. And a warning, this story from our Middle East correspondent, Alison Horn, contains distressing content. Yasser Abed is a veteran paramedic in Gaza, on way to another Israeli airstrike. There definitely are casualties. There are martyrs. There's definitely ten. Every hit, there are about ten dead and many wounded. As he arrives on the scene, it's absolute chaos. Gazan civilians are digging through the wreckage of a three-storey building that's collapsed. It housed more than 40 people, now a pile of concrete and twisted metal. Some of the injured and dead are being pulled from under the rubble. A group of men run past, carrying a severely wounded man, 
shouting a prayer. The paramedic team crawl under the collapsed walls of the house that are being perilously propped up by Besser blocks. Suddenly, Yasser's team yell out. A woman has been found alive. They need the ambulance now. So he rushes back to the vehicle. Every second is precious. But getting to the hospital has its own risks. Roads are damaged or destroyed. And at any moment, another airstrike could hit. A great number of my colleagues went to work and they never came back. It's a difficult time. I can go out and never come back. The most important thing is to rely on God. At the hospital, his team take the woman inside for emergency treatment. The corridors are packed with the injured. A young boy, his head bloodied and bandaged, is connected to an IV drip. He lay shivering on the floor. Evidence of a health system that's collapsed. But for Yasser, there's no time to dwell on the horror. He's needed back at the bomb site. He's driven to save every life he can. But he's haunted by those he can't. There was a baby who was half white with the beautiful angel face and his other half was burnt. He was dead. He was a few months old. He was still warm. There was no soul, yet he was warm, as if he'd recently died. These moments bring us down. They destroy us. Broken and destroyed, with each passing day bringing fresh horror. This is Alison Horn reporting for AM. Well, in the United States, tens of thousands of people are attending a pro-Israel rally in the capital, Washington, D.C. North America correspondent Barbara Miller is there. Well, these uh, crowds are gathered between the Washington Monument and the U.S. Capitol. As you say, a very large crowd. There's a significant police presence, but I certainly haven't seen any trouble so far. And they're hearing speeches from really the highest leadership in Congress. They've heard from the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, from the House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, both of those Democrats, but also from the new Speaker of the House, the Republican Mike Johnson. And all those leaders really assuring them of the absolute support of the U.S. administration for Israel at this time. Now, that's a message that's been welcomed by many in this crowd. We came to uh, show solidarity with with Israel, standing with Israel. Do, Do you have understanding for the calls from some quarters of the Democratic Party for a ceasefire? I, I do not. I do not. It's, it's like being after 9-11 and asking for ceasefire when you're trying to capture al-Qaeda. Palestinians have to understand that the Israelis are not the enemy, it's Hamas. And what about the Biden administration? What would he make of their response? Vanilla. Just not pro or con. I think they're kind of... They, they could be more supportive, I think.
Uh, there was also a very large rally from pro-Palestinian groups earlier this month in D.C. And there's been significant tension on U.S. university campuses between pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian groups. So what you see here today doesn't reflect those inner tensions uh, that the Biden administration is currently grappling with. And Barb, President Joe Biden's been speaking also about the Israeli hostages being held by Hamas in Gaza. What's he had to say? Yes, he made some very uh, brief comments, and as he does, sort of uh, in a almost offhand way, it seems, as reporters shout questions at him as he's uh, leaving an event. And what he said was that he was uh, sure or it was going to happen that a large number of hostages would be released. He said he talked every day to the negotiating parties. Now, we think that that involves Qatar, who was said to have played a key role in an earlier release of a, a U.S. mother and daughter who were held hostages and asked if he had a message for the families. He said, hang in there, we're coming. So really a very strong indication from the president that he thinks that he can negotiate some kind of deal. Uh, the Israelis tempering that somewhat because any kind of deal, it's thought, would involve a significant pause in hostilities. So uh, yet to be seen whether the president can back up those comments with any action soon uh, on the around about 240 people we believe being held in Gaza and those include David, a three-year-old American who we're told was orphaned in those Hamas attacks on October the 7th. Correspondent Barbara Miller there in Washington. GPs say they're seeing more patients than ever and spending more time with them, but the doctors themselves aren't doing so well, with a third planning to retire in the next five years. A new report is warning doctors are becoming burnt out, demoralised and fearful for the future of their profession. And as Nick Grimm reports, it's discouraging medical students from becoming GPs. Oh, hi, Martha. Come on in. Hi, thank you. All right. Really nice to see you. Everyone needs a good checkup now and then, and for that, most Australians will visit their local GP. What's brought you in today? I'm feeling really tired at the moment. But a health check of general practice in Australia has diagnosed a serious malaise has hit the profession, with doctors reporting they're stressed, overworked and struggling to keep their practices viable. Two-thirds are eager to work less hours and a third are planning to retire within five years. The findings out today in the 2023 Health of the Nation report from the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. We know that we're going to be facing a significant shortage of GPs in 10 years' time if we don't address it now. Sydney GP Charlotte Hespie says the problem is getting worse because medical students are avoiding specialising as GPs. I do actually think young doctors want to become GPs. It's just that they don't see it as being a viable option at the moment because it's not paying well enough. And so that it's much easier to go into other specialties where there's a higher um, guaranteed income and probably some less complexities. I enjoy the continuity of care that you get with general practice. So you can get to know someone and stay as their GP, sometimes for life. Dr Jane Tate is one of the exceptions. The young medical registrar is currently completing her training to specialise as a general practitioner. But has general practice become uh, something of an unfashionable choice for medical students? Yeah, I think so. Part of it is the pay discrepancy amongst GPs and other specialists. 
in comparison. So I think that is a downside. That's how a lot of medical students and graduates view GP. The report calls for incentive payments for trainee GPs along with study leave and paid parental leave. The National President of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners, Dr Nicole Higgins, says this year's report presents a troubling picture of a workforce under strain. What we're calling on the government is to continue to invest in general practice and primary care because we're the ones that keep people out of hospitals and out of emergency departments. In a statement, Federal Health Minister Mark Butler says the government knows not enough medical graduates are choosing general practice and that it's delivering sustained investment to strengthen Medicare, including a $1.5 billion indexation boost to Medicare payments. Nick Grimm there. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm David Lipson. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. As the war in Gaza intensifies, protests across the world are growing larger and in some cases turning violent. Today, Chair in Global Islamic Politics at Deakin Uni, Greg Barton, on why the war is fueling a divide the Hamas terrorists would have hoped for. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener.